Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's February 7th, 2021. President Biden has taken office and, as expected, quickly signed a series of executive orders that reversed Trump policies and began movement on other policy initiatives of his own. There's no question that signing executive orders is great theater. President Biden made a point of signing his first orders very publicly as some of his first acts his very first day in office after taking the oath. But TV production value aside, what exactly is he doing under the Constitution? This episode reviews just what the Constitution says about executive orders and considers the likely challenges that may lie ahead for the Biden administration. As we've talked about before, four reliable guideposts for looking at a constitutional issue are structure, intent, text, and history. Today, I start with text and intent. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1, the Constitution says, The executive power, with a capital P, shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Clause 2 says the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Neither one of those sentences says anything directly about executive orders, but it's clear from looking at their language that the executive is the person in charge of the executive branch, holds the power with a capital P, and it follows from that that the leader should have some ability to communicate with and instruct the parts of the government that he is charged with supervising under the Constitution. History shows, not surprisingly, that presidents, who are leaders by their nature, having sought that office, like to give orders to those who work for them. The first executive order came from George Washington in 1789. He asked his cabinet of that time to impress me with a full, precise, and distinct general idea of the affairs of the United States and the various parts of government that they supervised. And every president since then has issued executive orders of their own as to the issues that were before them, except for William Henry Harrison, who caught pneumonia at his inauguration and was unable to sign much of anything, including executive orders. The name comes from the work of President Lincoln during the Civil War. He signed an executive order establishing a provisional court in Louisiana. And in recent times, we've seen a very consistent practice of orders on a number of different things. President Clinton and his two terms signed 364, George W. Bush 291, Obama 276, and President Trump 220 all of whom, though, were slackers compared to Franklin Roosevelt and the many orders associated with the New Deal, where he signed 3,721 in total over the many years of his administrations. This leads us to structure. And here are their two points. There's the general high-level structure established by the Constitution, where we have certain activities for this branch of government and others for another branch of government. Fortunately, we've had few occasions to have to test those limits of that high-level structure. The leading case, Youngstown Steel versus Sawyer from 1952, concerned about a strike in the nation's steel mills in the middle of the Korean War. President Truman ordered a nationalization of the steel mills. Government take them over and operate them. The Supreme Court agreed that the president had gone too far and that he'd entered an area of economic regulation that our Constitution reserves to Congress and Congress alone. There were different concurring and dissenting opinions in the case. Justice Jackson's concurrence emerged out of that as the most cited part of the court's work on that case. He said there were three types of executive power. The first and most solid is when the president is carrying out something that Congress has expressly spoken to. Conversely, the second and weakest is when it's an area Congress has acted and either expressly said don't do that or impliedly did so by choosing a different solution than the one the president might like. And the third he called a zone of twilight. We don't know if he watched the popular TV show at the time. I don't think it was on the air yet. Maybe they got the idea from him. But in the zone of twilight, it's simply not clear which branch of government has the authority 
authority, and the result of a challenge turns on what he called the imperatives of events and contemporary imponderables. That sounds abstract, but we've seen a lot of contemporary imponderables over the last year as the executive branches of government, both federal and state, have reacted to the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. The imponderables of how quickly you have to act, where you have to act, what groups get certain medicines or get certain resources, those might or might not ultimately rest with the executive. But in time of crisis, when you need quick action, executives are given that power, and it's generally have been affirmed throughout the country as we've wrestled with those over time in different contexts. That leads to the second area. The first, of course, is the high-level, broad divisions of government set up by our Constitution. The second is the infrastructure that Congress builds on top of that when it passes laws to deal with specific topics. The most famous example in recent years is the litigation ultimately ended up in our Supreme Court in the case of Trump versus Hawaii, the so-called Muslim ban. In the early days of the Trump administration, the president signed an executive order that would have restricted immigration from certain countries. That was challenged in court and went back and forth and back and forth. I think it was the fourth version of it that was ultimately examined by the Supreme Court. And one of the critical issues in that case was Did the executive action of the president comport with the acts of Congress in the Immigration and Nationality Act? The Immigration and Nationality Act is, of course, the combination of federal laws and related regulations over many, many years of Congress speaking to immigration. And the Supreme Court said the president is free to set some priorities as to how he carries that out. He's free to interpret phrases that might be left open by Congress. But he can't just go in and say, here's going to be new priorities that are different than what Congress has said to do in that act. And while the original version of the order had some problems and there were some legitimate criticisms of it, the Supreme Court concluded that by the time it had been revised and got in front of it, there was not a conflict. The president's power in that case was consistent with what Congress had ordered over the years in the Immigration Act and was an acceptable use of an executive order. In other words, the second category that Justice Jackson was talking about in Youngstown Steel. And below that, there's yet another level of detail in our government. There's the broad sketch by the Constitution. Below that, you have Congress building out laws in its areas of expertise. And then you have delegation by Congress to administrative agencies, the IRS, the FCC, the FTC, any number of them. And there, the agencies are constrained substantively by what Congress has told them to do, but also by procedure. The most important law that most people have never heard of in our modern government is the Administrative Procedure Act, which sets the rules for every administrative agency and how they are to go about conducting their business in their areas of responsibility. They say that they have to get comment from the public, they have to give notice, they have to consider that comment in a certain way. And the phrase that is used in that statute that you often see in litigation about that is whether the action of the agency is arbitrary and capricious. Imagine, for example, one day the FCC woke up and said, we're just going to move all the radio frequencies around. We're going to move AM to FM, and we're going to randomly change everybody. And that would create chaos, great economic disruption. People couldn't use the radio, and that would be invalidated as arbitrary and capricious action. Instead, the APA says if you want to do something with an issue like radio frequencies, you have to set out what it is you want to do. You have to hear what people have to say and then come up with a rule that reflects that you considered on that, which leads to an example in the most recent round of executive orders signed by President Biden. In there was a, an, a requirement in one of his orders that there be a pause for 100 days on certain deportation policies that Homeland Security was using that had begun during the previous administration. A court in Texas issued an early 
early order, a temporary restraining order, saying, whoa, stop, can't let that pause go in because that's an administrative agency action. It's governed by the APA. It has to go in a certain way. And the president can't just jump in in the middle of that process and say, now, wait a minute, stop. This is something that under our Constitution belongs to Congress. Congress has dealt with it by giving it to the agency, and there are certain rules the agency has to follow, and the executive order can't make an end run around that. Any more than the agency could just disregard its own rules, the president can't come in and make an end run around the rules. So those are the guidelines under which President Biden will be issuing executive orders if he wants to continue down the active path. He's issued 20-odd so far. That's more than any president in recent memory has done in the early days of their administration. And certainly some of that is going to end up in court because these orders, by their nature, address policy issues that are very important to a lot of people in the country. And that's going to be the framework that the courts look to, the broad structure of the Constitution, then to what Congress did, and then to whether it's something that an administrative agency is dealing with that's governed by the specialized rules for those agencies. The executive has enormous power under the Constitution, but only within certain specific guidelines in certain specific areas. And identifying those sweet spots will be the ultimate challenge for the president as he tries to aggressively use executive orders to advance his policy agenda. Today on Coal Mind, I considered the power of a new president to shape his agenda with executive orders. The text of the Constitution suggests the president has power to give some type of order to the executive branch of government that he leads, and history shows that presidents enthusiastically use that power to the tune of thousands of orders by at least a couple of presidents over the last couple of hundred years. But the structure of our government imposes limits in the Constitution itself, in the powers to other branches of government, and in rules about procedure and to how different parts of our government are supposed to conduct themselves particularly in the area of immigration, that can lead to friction, which can then lead to challenges in court to straighten out just who has the power to speak to those issues in our separation of powers form of government. As the impeachment proceedings go forward, I expect further discussion on coal mine of the constitutional issues that process presents. The Biden administration's uh, approach to federal regulation will also likely lead to discussions about states' rights as well as these procedural issues I talked about today. If you like the podcast, I encourage you to leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.